Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. So we're turning now for our second study in this little series, Three Views of Christmas, to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1 and verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. That six-month period is a reference back to the anticipated birth of John the Baptist to his father Zechariah and his, uh, at least by Middle Eastern standards in those days, elderly mother Elizabeth. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There are three Gospels, as you know, in which the story of the Incarnation is retold. Matthew, that we looked at last week, Luke, that we are looking at this week, and John, to which, God willing, we will turn next week. And the Gospels, these three Gospels, in one sense, are like triplets. Um, Our daughter has five children, and numbers four and five came as a package deal. They turned five yesterday, and it's been one of the amazing things to me, watching them grow up, uh, how long it has taken me to distinguish between them. But once you can distinguish between them, 
you notice all kinds of differences. Uh, profound similarities. Uh, their teacher in their first year at school told their mother that she had them in separate parts of the classroom at different times and asked them to count up to 20. And they both said 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Something deep into the genes, probably my responsibility in this case. An amazing similarity. But then you begin to notice the differences. And reading the Gospels is exactly the same. The, the first thing you notice is their tremendous similarity. They all have the same person at the center. Actually a very unusual, unique phenomenon in antiquity that we have these several books with the same person at the center. But then the more you become familiar with them, the more you begin to notice the little differences, the different viewpoints, not only that the characters express, Joseph's experience in Matthew, obviously Mary's experience here in Luke, but you see that the authors have framed the stories in different ways. Um, just as if you were having a, a poster or a painting framed at the framers, you might want to look at several frames, and if he were an expert or she were an expert, she would say, now, this frame brings out the picture best. Or for all I know, when you ladies go to the hairdressers, unlike most of us men, um, what do you want done to your hair? I imagine, I have no personal experience of this, but I imagine you want your hair done in such a way that it will set your face in its most glamorous form so that the, the good features will stand out. And if there are any other features, perish the thought, somehow or another uh, these will be minimized. And we find the same thing in the Gospels. We may not notice it at first, but the more familiar we become with them, these frames that set the picture tell us a great deal about the big emphasis of the different Gospels. For example, although we didn't notice this last week, in Matthew chapter 1, from verse 18 to the end, there are five different occasions in which Matthew says this happened in order that an Old Testament prophecy might be fulfilled. And if you've ever paused to read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, you'll know that Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. And he wants to highlight for us the way in which the Lord Jesus fulfills the ancient prophecies and the promise given to Abraham. Of course, all of this is true for Luke, but he frames the story in a different way. Luke, after all, is a Gentile who's been converted. He is an educated man. He's often thought of as the person who is the most deeply historical of the authors. He's writing for a man who, who may be his patron called Theophilus, who presumably is some wealthy Roman senator, perhaps. 
And so he sets the story of Jesus, not just in terms of the fulfillment of prophecy, but Jesus at the center of world history. And as you read through the narrative, you notice little indications of him doing this. He gives dates, very precise dates. He sets the birth of Jesus in the context of the Roman Empire, the great world power. And interestingly, when he comes to trace genealogies, he traces Jesus' genealogy not just back to Abraham, but right back to Adam. And the message begins to filter through it in a way. It's like background music, but it helps you focus on what Luke's message is. That Jesus is the Savior for the whole world. And that his coming is not just an event of Jewish proportions. It is an event of cosmic proportions. He is as we read in this passage, none other than the very Son of God invading human history. And he has come not just to fulfill prophecy, but, and this is the whole point ultimately of his virginal conception, to go right back to the very beginnings of history and to start God's purposes, as it were, God's kingdom that will last forever, to inaugurate it all over again from the, as it were, minutia of human life in his spirit-given conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, this is a tremendously profound passage. It's, it's packed with layers um, it's, it's like a great painting that an art expert might take you to and, and after explaining the little details might say there is much more here but you'll need to come back for a second visit. That's what makes it possible to preach on these passages for ministers year after year. And I want to, as it were, pull on three particular threads in this tapestry that I think help us to feel the weight of what Luke himself must have felt when, as he says in chapter 1, he did his research. Perhaps even it was possible for him to visit with the Virgin Mary herself. He certainly would have been able to visit with some of the family circle and learn the story, as it were, from from Mary's own lips. So the first thing I want you to notice in this passage is its central emphasis on the child's identity. And you see this, don't you, in chapter 1 and verse 26 following, and especially when the angel makes his announcement to her in verse 31, you will conceive in your woman bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Exactly the same message that was given to Joseph. But you'll notice that the explanation of the name is not contradictory, but it's different and it's complementary. You will give him the name Jesus, not as Joseph learns, because he will save his people from their sins, which he certainly will do. 
But because, notice what follows, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, if your mind is anything like mine, the kind of butterfly mind that finds it difficult to stop, then this simply appears as a kind of blur of great descriptions. And we don't have time to stop and, as it were, um, suck the nectar out of every single one of these descriptions of the coming child. But in many ways, they're like a mosaic. But not a mosaic of pieces of stone or of some kind of artwork. They're a mosaic of Bible verses with which I have very little doubt, reading on to the Magnificat, Mary herself would have been familiar. There's a kind of impressionism, one might say here, um, that, that even if you couldn't give chapter and verse, which Mary couldn't have done because her Bible didn't have chapters and verses like our Bibles, all of these statements about this child would, would ring bells, would conjure up atmospheres, memories, and, and there, are, there are reflections in, in this little statement about Jesus that, that go back, for example, to the promise that was given to David in Second Samuel 7 that's rehearsed in Psalm 72 about the king who is going to come, who will reign forever. There's a reflection back to the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob each one of whom almost destroyed the promise that God had given that a Savior would come through their family line. And there's a reflection too of the Psalms and their statement about the king who would sit on the throne, who would be God's son. And there's a reflection of Isaiah's prophecy about the coming one, that he would be great. And there's very clear reflection on the visions of Daniel about the Son of Man who would come and who would ascend to the throne of the Most High and then, having received a kingdom, would then, as it were, share that kingdom with everyone who belonged to him. The company of the Son of Man, the saints of the Most High. And so it's as though it's squeezed into this statement is, is, is a whole series of, of streams running into the river which is now in full flood in the assurance given to Mary that the one who is going to come as her child is none other than the one who is actually going to fulfill this promise of God. A promise that undergirds all of these promises. That in the seed of the woman, you remember in Genesis 3.15? Not interestingly, in the seed of the man. Adam is, as it were, set aside in, in that amazing curse that's pronounced on the serpent. From now on, your seed will battle with the seed of the woman, and one day... One seed of the woman will crush your 
head, even as you crush his heel. And it's the story of how God is, as it were, going back to the beginning in order to begin again. It runs actually like a light motif through the Gospel of Luke that this one who has come has come as the second man, as the last Adam. And he has come, as it were, to go back to the very beginning of human experience. And in his holiness, which Gabriel emphasizes, is going to live a life of perfect holiness, die the death that we deserve, rise in majesty and power, and bring in a new creation. Luke must have known Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.17, even if he never referred to them as 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. And this is where that new creation is beginning. And it's this part of the message, not, not just, I think, that Mary is a teenage virgin, but it's the enormity of what is being promised in the son that is going to be born. That this is God, as it were, taking fragmented, fractured human history, the story of broken human lives, and saying, I'm going to begin again. So, That's the first thing, the central thing that is emphasized. It's the child's identity. But in a sense, it fairly obviously explains the second thing that's emphasized. And that is the virgin conception. It's true that Jesus was born of a virgin, but his birth was natural. The thing that is supernatural is not the way in which he was born. The thing that's supernatural is the way that he was conceived. And it's this conception that is now emphasized. The angel Gabriel comes, we're told, to a virgin. And the virgin was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, and the virgin's name was Mary. And Mary says, how can this be, seeing I am a virgin, in verse 34. But, you see, when you take in the words that Gabriel has spoken to her, then it does make sense, doesn't it? If you begin with the perplexity of the virgin conception, as many people do, you cannot work it out. And Mary says as much. Not only does Mary say as much, but Gabriel agrees. He as much as says, I know this is impossible with men. But the light that sheds light on all of this is, this one who is coming is the Son of God. This one who is coming into our world is going to take upon himself the characteristics of life in a fallen world, sin apart. But his origin is in eternity. 
Um, it's just amazing the number of people who naively and rather arrogantly say we are, we are 21st scientific people. We, we don't believe this kind of thing. It was these people who believed this kind of thing. And you want to say, have you never actually read the narrative? The narrative tells you that they knew this kind of thing doesn't happen. They knew this kind of thing is impossible with man. But Gabriel says what is impossible with man is possible with God. And he gives us not an explanation of the biology, but he does give us a description of the phenomenon. And it's, it's very interesting because if you think about it, if you run your mind through the big moments in the Bible, I think it will dawn on you that the big moments in the Bible characteristically happen in the dark. Creation happens in the dark. Abraham's great experience happens in the dark. Jesus' birth happens out of the dark. His resurrection takes place in the dark. It's almost as though there, there is a refrain running through the Bible that keeps on telling us God does his best work in the dark, far from prying eyes. Do not try and understand God. Have you no idea? Have you, have you never... Aren't you actually a 21st century person who has some sense greater than any other point in history of how vast the universe is? Have you no idea how glorious and great and infinitely powerful and so far above your understanding God is? The Bible keeps saying to us, down peacock's feathers, who do you think you are? So surely it is not beyond the wit of God to do this, but what Gabriel emphasizes is the way in which he will do it is through the Holy Spirit. Now, hopefully you're not yet full of turkey and plum pudding and you'll be able to follow the next couple of minutes. The verb Luke uses. So Luke actually tells us something in this passage that's, that's very helpful for us to understand. The verb he uses, this idea of the, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, is a verb he uses on only one other occasion in the gospel. And that's usually some kind of signal to us as we read the gospel. It's the verb he uses in chapter 9 to describe the cloud coming down on uh, Jesus and the three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration and the voice saying, this is my son, listen to him. So that cloud that came down is linked by Luke to the Spirit of God coming down and overshadowing Mary so that 
God's Son would be conceived, just as it overshadowed James and John, and the voice said, listen to my Son who is here. And what's so interesting about that is that what was being discussed on the mountain, I wonder if you remember this, um, which isn't usually brought out very well by our English translations. Often it was the departure Jesus would accomplish in Jerusalem, but the word is exodus. The word is exodus. What Jesus was going to accomplish in Jerusalem was nothing less than the the real exodus from our bondage in sin and death and to Satan and to self, of which the geographical exodus was ultimately just a picture. There are all kinds of interesting other connections that we can't go into this morning that underscore for us that this use of the verb that Luke has is telling us something. That that what is beginning to happen here in the conception of this child is what was foreshadowed for his ancient people in their exodus from bondage in Egypt and their deliverance physically Uh, through the wilderness into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that was reminiscent of Eden and looked forward to the coming day of glory. And the message is that this is what the Holy Spirit is uh, beginning to effect again right here in the, the humble womb of a teenage virgin. And... He's setting all man's ability to the side. And he's beginning again. And it's in this one, in this Jesus, that the true exodus is going to take place. I mean, you can almost imagine that behind this is some amazing conversation among the persons of the Trinity, looking on the lostness and rebellion and sinfulness of the human condition and the Father saying either we leave them to self-destruct eternally or we're going to to begin again. And the Son saying, begin again with me. I'll take on human flesh. I'll enter into this bloodstream. And the Holy Spirit saying, And I will guarantee your purity from the beginning and sustain you in it to the very end. And the Bible teaches us this, doesn't it? It teaches everything everything about Jesus has been part of the Father's plan and everything that's accomplished in Jesus is accomplished through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He offers himself up, says Hebrews, by the power of the Spirit. He's raised, says the Apostle Paul, vindicated in his resurrection by the power of the Spirit. So that right here at at the very beginning is this little indication of a divine conspiracy taking place in order that salvation might come to men and women, not only men and women from the promised line 
of Abraham. But men and women and boys and girls, no matter where they are in the Roman Empire, no matter where they are in the cosmos, being brought through Christ into this kingdom that will be established, the kingdom that was lost by Adam and is now reestablished by Christ, adopting them to become royal sons and daughters of the eternal King. In one sense, you, you read this and you think, this is far too good not to be true. This is beyond human invention. So, there's the child's identity. There's the virgin conception. And then obviously in the third place, there's the mother's response. And it's, it's very beautiful, isn't it? In, in verse 38, it's very sweet. Um, she was younger than most of the women in this room. Unless you've gone to university pretty young, she's probably younger than you were when you came to university. But this sweet response... Whatever you say, unreserved, whatever you say, let it be according to your word. Church has always had problems with Mary and Joseph, hasn't it? Um, either to make too much of them, as sometimes has happened, or, or because too much of them has been made, essentially to ignore them. How are we to view them? Well, here's how we are to view them. It's actually, it's very obvious in Matthew's Gospel, and with Mary, it's very obvious in Luke's Gospel. They are Jesus' first disciples. They are the first people in the history of the Gospel whose whole lives are reorientated to the Lord Jesus whose whole lives are dependent on the Lord Jesus, whom they knew to be the Savior. They're the first ones who know, and for all their struggles, love, for all their misunderstanding at times, are devoted to and give their whole lives to the Lord Jesus, trusting in Him. They are the first Christian disciples. And insofar as that is true, you can, you can trace in this experience of Mary how it is that you become a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Um, it often happens when somebody comes from beyond and you find yourself being thrust into a, a world with which you are not familiar. That happens to many university students, doesn't it? And, and to others of us who, who were or never have been and perhaps never will be uh, university students. The, some messenger has come. And there's been a kind of invasion of our privacy because they're Christians because they're different. And because when they speak to you, they speak differently. And especially what's different about them is that 
what they invade your life with is they talk about the Lord Jesus. And for some of us, that's a very disturbing thing. They may even talk about experiences that, that, that you argue with them about because you've never had those experiences. So you kind of argue, you can't possibly, that can't really be real. And uh, then their witness to you begins to tell on your life. And it all begins to fit into place. Um, it, even although you can't fully understand it, you begin to see that in the light of Jesus Christ, everything else fits into place. And whether slowly or suddenly you begin to respond in, and you're drawn to him. I mean, there's something rather remarkable about this that, the, that Gabriel says it's going to happen. Um, but the passage doesn't end with it's going to happen. It ends with this amazing kind of complementarity between what God is planning to do and, and Mary's free, joyful, willing response to God. And you're drawn in. And you say to him, let it be to me according to your word about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you yield the whole of your life to him. And you, you really have no idea what is going to happen. Um, no idea at all. Except you know that he is true and he is real. And he has begun to transform your life. And therefore you can trust him with absolutely everything. And perhaps that's where you are. Perhaps Mary's mysterious experience actually is, is, like, is like watching a movie in which you realize um, this is so like my own life. Yes, different, different circumstances, <laughs> profoundly different circumstances. The same basic pattern. And I didn't really understand what was happening, but now I'm beginning to see. And that what I see is Christ is coming to me, calling me to himself, saying, trust me as your Savior. Follow me as your Lord. And you're maybe likely to say, well, what next? And he's, he's not going to tell you what next. But he will be to you a faithful Savior, both in life and in death, and lead you into his everlasting kingdom. So, let Mary be for us a model of discipleship. And whatever the Lord presses on us as he himself speaks to us through his word, whatever he presses on our lives individually, the marvelous thing is he does it so individually. No, but not, not even your nearest and dearest friend sitting next to you knows what's going on in your heart as you listen to God's word being expounded by Christ himself through his Holy Spirit.
And as he speaks to you, you bow before him and you say, then let it be, Lord. I want Christ. I need Christ. And I trust Christ. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the wonder of your word. We thank you for the depth of it. Um, as we as we have our little probes into it, and especially these Christmas passages each year, and then we're able to come back next year and and find there's still more and more. It, it seems it seems to be an unending ocean of wonderful truth about our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we may see Him more clearly, that we may love Him more dearly and that we may follow him more nearly, day by day. And we pray this in his name. Amen.